Well, good morning again. Uh, last Sunday, and I want to make sure my mic isn't loud, but it feels loud. Okay? There you go. All right. Because you know how it is. And my wife, I don't, I don't want her to say something afterwards that I was yelling. And have it be your fault, technician. Um, last Sunday, we looked at the fourth spiritual blessing from Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And it was what? Who was here? Who remembers? Redemption, right? Redemption, uh, which Paul said, okay, here's redemption. Here's an aspect of it. And it says in the text, the forgiveness of all our transgressions. And so uh, redemption has to do with Jesus Christ buying us out of slavery and delivering us from sin, the devil, and God's wrath. We talked about all of that last week, and I would encourage anyone who missed to go back and listen probably to this entire series. This morning, we're going to attempt to tackle the fifth spiritual blessing, which is the mystery of God's will, the mystery of God's will. Take your Bibles and turn right over to Ephesians 1. Our focus today is going to be verse eight, verses 8 through 10. So that's where we're going to be. Go ahead and turn over there, Ephesians 1, verses 8 through 10. And uh, let me pray one more time before we get to work. It's good to see you, my brother. It's good to see you guys. See a brother over here I care about. I don't know why I said that. He's probably embarrassed now, but that's okay. It's a small church. You don't have to be embarrassed here, right? If it was at Big Valley and there was 1,500 people in there, that'd be really awkward. So anyways, let me pray for our, for our study time. Lord, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Um, may, may your word not fall on deaf ears or dull, stony hearts. Uh, we pray for the Holy Spirit now, that he would come and that he would open our hearts and minds to the truth, and that the truth would not be just pure knowledge or something that we learn. This isn't a lecture, but that it would, be, it would penetrate us and change who we are. And maybe for someone in this room, that means salvation. And for others in this room, that just means edification, that they're made more like Christ. It means sanctification. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in power in our midst. And God, may you be glorified here today as you begin to unpack, unfold, in a sense or to a degree, the mystery of your will. And we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me read the verses out loud. It says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That is our focus passage for this morning. And what I'd like for us all to notice and to look at are the seven phrases that are actually in that text. There's seven phrases there, really eight, but the seventh and eighth one are kind of the same thing. So I'll just say seven Seven phrases in verses 8 through 10. That's what we're going to study. That's what we're going to break down. So let's begin with the first one. You ready to go? You ready to take some notes? Fantastic. Number one, which he lavished upon us. Which he lavished upon us. What was Paul referring to here? What has God lavished upon his adopted sons and daughters upon those who are in the beloved, right? That's what we've been studying, what it means to be in the beloved in Christ and these things were adopted. 
What has He lavished upon us? Well, we have to look back in verse 7, and before I say it, uh, what you have to realize about 3 through 14 is that it's really like one sentence with a lot of commas. And so it's really one kind of series of thoughts and impactful statements. And so that's why we have to keep kind of going back and forth. But anyways, what has God lavished upon us as adopted sons and daughters? End of verse 7, the riches of His grace. The riches of His grace. That is what He has lavished upon us. We could say that He has just lavished His grace upon us. Lavished is an interesting Greek word. It's perisuo, and it means to provide in abundance or to have more than enough, or my favorite, excessive. Lavished means excessive, right? And, and you just think about that. We're talking about the riches of God's grace. We're talking about His grace. We're talking about an excessive amount of His grace being poured out onto or for the believer. And, and how wonderful is it to know that, that God doesn't measure out His grace to us? that He doesn't give it to us in increments, that He doesn't have it like a savings plan where there's you know, certain dollar amounts of it that are set up, well, you get this much on this date, like a retirement or something, this much on this date and this much on this date, and, and He hasn't broken it up in increments or payments like that. That's not at all what the text says, the end of verse 7 and the beginning of 8. It's a lavishing, it's a waterfall, it's an ocean's worth of it. And it just, it's there and it's never depleted. You can't out-sin it. You know, grace always abounds where sin is present. And so I, I just love the fact that it's lavished upon us. And, and for some of us in this room, I, I would say probably all of us, we really need to realize this truth. Because we, we look at our lives and we look at the things that we're doing the wrong things that we do at times, the sins and these things and, and the mistakes and the foibles and, and stumblings. And we say to ourselves, man, there's just, you know, there's just not grace for me or God can't be pleased with me. I, I've lost God's favor or these are the things that we say to ourselves. We reflect upon our circumstances or our poor choices and we say, well, the storehouse of God's grace is closed to me now. Well, that's not at all the implication of the verse. It, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. And, and, and if it were a race between us and grace, grace has been at the finish line since eternity passed, and you're still running, and you think you're outrunning it, but you're not. You, you can't outrun it. You can't. Let, let's put it this way. I'd like to interpret this as there is more grace than we can actually consume as if it were something that we did consume. It can't even be consumed. It doesn't digest. Because to say that it digests means it's consumed and it's gone. It never goes. It's a constant ever flow from this eternal, amazing Father, Abba Father that we have. Let that sink in, friends. This is huge stuff here. His grace is enough. Why? Because His grace is as infinite as He is to the believer. It's amazing. He lavishes it upon us. I love that. It's not measured. It's not incrementally given. None of that. It's poured out. It's continuous. It never stops. Now, one of the riches of God's grace is 
the forgiveness of our trespasses, right? We learned about that last week. It's like when you think of riches, think of diamonds or something like that, okay? And, 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 and these are the riches of His grace. One of those diamonds is forgiveness, okay? We'll think of it like that. We learned about that last Sunday. In the next phrase, we see another one. We see another rich, another uh, diamond of His grace, The second phrase is, in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight are also gifts of God's grace. They're also precious stones of God's grace. They literally give us the ability to comprehend certain things. Okay? They give us the ability to comprehend certain things. Wisdom and insight enable a believer to understand, to a degree I would say, the mysterious things of God. They give us an ability to comprehend, to understand, to discern these things to a degree. Some things to the fullest sense. Others, not so much because they're mysterious. I would say it, they, it gives us the ability to understand the mysterious things of God, especially in relationship to eschatology or last things or the end times. How many of you guys have ever studied the end times? You think it's really cool, you're fascinated, you love the Left Behind series. I'm just kidding about the last part. But how many of you have actually looked into eschatology, that you've looked into the end times? I think probably Tim has because he, he, he likes that stuff, right, Tim? You've looked into it, and I have too. And I can tell you I'm probably more confused today than I ever have been on the subject. Why? Because it's mysterious. But God has still given us truth about it. He's still given us facts about it. There's things there. But This wisdom and insight here in particular has to do with those things. It has to do with last things or end times. If God had not graced us with wisdom and insight, we would not be able to grasp these things in any sense. And and you might say, well, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is the revealer of truth, you know, to the unbeliever and to the believer. And so, you know, obviously he can bypass the wisdom and insight and just make a direct connect. No, the Holy Spirit's the one that brings the wisdom and the insight. So there is no, you know, understanding these things without wisdom and insight or without the influence and powerful teaching work of the Holy Spirit. They all work together. But we wouldn't grasp any of this stuff if it weren't for this gift of God's grace, wisdom and insight. We would remain ignorant about these things and about many other things. But God, because He's merciful, because He loves His children, because He's gracious, He wants His adopted sons and daughters to know why He's done what He's done and what lies ahead. And that is why He has equipped His children with wisdom and insight. It's as if our Heavenly Father does not want us to remain in the dark about what's to come, or about maybe uh, more of the implications of Christ's work. He wants his children to have the wisdom and insight so that they'll know and understand and comprehend even some of these mysterious things. Why? I mean, how can you hope for the future? And you don't just hope for the future, you hope for the chain of events and things that God's going to do, but how can you have any hope for what's to come if you can't comprehend what's to come? And, And God wants us to have hope filled lives. He doesn't want us to be filled with anxiety and anxious and worried constantly about what's to come. He wants his children to know, like, here's my plan. I know it's mysterious. I know it's hard, but I'll give you enough so that you can continue to hope and move forward. And that's what he's done for us, and it's the riches of his grace. Now, look at the next phrase, 
making known to us the mystery of His will. You must know how this works with the last phrase. Wisdom and insight are key to understanding the mystery of God's will. It's through the wisdom and insight that He makes it known to us. When I first read this particular set of phrases, I thought the wisdom and insight had to do with God's wisdom and insight. Like he's, he's poured out all his grace on us according to his wisdom and insight and all of that. And that's not at all the way to interpret this verse because God doesn't have wisdom and insight. God is wisdom and insight. God doesn't have a measure of something. He is the full embodiment of it. And so this wisdom and insight is given to us. It is ours. And because of it, he makes known to us the mystery of his will. Again, without the wisdom and insight, something here isn't made known. But because of the wisdom and insight that he gives, it is made known. So these things are key to that. And I like how MLJ put it, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've been quoting him pretty regularly because his commentary is the primary one that I use. And I was kind of thrilled that I only maybe read a page of it this week. And I was able to write all of this and to pray through it and do it on my own. And so you can't blame Martin Lloyd-Jones today if something happens. Uh, but it was interesting that God brought to memory and gave me, uh, it's just, it was just a cool experience. But let me, let me get out of that and say what he said here. It's great. What the apostle is saying, therefore, is that the riches of God's grace toward us have not stopped at the matter of forgiveness, but have so abounded that they have brought to us something further, namely the wisdom and insight that are absolutely necessary to a knowledge of of the mystery of God's will. This is what he said about it, and this is exactly how I've been interpreting this. So that was a great affirmation. Now, what did Paul have in mind here? And I'm going to spend more time on certain phrases and less on others, but what did he have in mind here? What is the mystery of God's will? What is he referring to here? Well, I'll give you the answer in just a moment. I'd like to deal with the next phrase before we do that. And this is really cool. And I think this is going to be really helpful for some of us. And, and then maybe some of us might consider it a bit of a cop-out in a way, but it's absolutely not. Next phrase, number four, according to his purpose. So what does he do? He makes known to us the mystery of his will, comma, according to his purpose. Now, the first thing that we notice about that little phrase, according to his purpose, is that there's a little bit of a trend here in our whole passage. 3 to 14. There's a little bit of trend here happening. There's a little bit of repetition happening here, right? And, and, and here's what I've noticed. When, when Paul announces something, when he declares something mysterious, he injects this little phrase, according to his purpose. He did that back in verse 5 when he wrote about predestination unto adoption. I think that all of us in this room would agree that predestination, like setting up our adoption in eternity past, something that can't be thwarted, it's going to happen, but setting that all up for us in eternity past before the earth was created, we would all agree that that's a pretty mysterious thing, wouldn't we? How does that work? And we would also agree that the sentence before that in verse 4 where he talks about chosen before the foundation of the world, we would also agree that the election of God, that choosing for himself, his people in eternity past, promising to save them. He does that. He delivers. We would all say that election is exponentially mysterious, right? Anyone who would ever say to you, well, I've got that doctrine nailed down. I've got this predestination to adoption completely nailed down. It's systematized. Here's the perfect answer to it. Run for your life from that person. 
I, I, we, don't misunderstand me here. God has made things lucidly clear in the Scripture, whether we have the ability with these finite minds to fully comprehend it. Now, that's the issue. And I think that there are some things that are mysterious. But we would all agree that predestination to adoption and election are mysterious. And you know what? Quite frankly, some of us have put in more time of study Scripture, and we've read good theology, and we have a pretty good base on those things. But no one should ever claim to have those things nailed down or act like it, because that would be the height of arrogance. Because these things are very, very challenging and difficult for us. They're very, they're massive doctrines. They're huge building superstructure of doctrine. And so let's not pretend these things are that. And, and the, the fact is, is that when Paul announced them earlier, he said, according to his purpose, the little clause that he puts in there, Paul knew that some of the doctrines, some of these acts of God that he wrote about would be difficult for his readers to understand. He did. Because of their mysterious nature. The apostle Peter acknowledged this in 2 Peter 3.16. He wrote, there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. There are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. I'm thinking Romans 8 and 9. Not impossible to understand, but difficult and challenging. I'd say our text, difficult and challenging to a degree. And he says this, he says, there's some things that he wrote that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. He gives a warning there. He says, you know what, some things are hard to grasp and people, what they end up doing is making those things mean what they want them to mean without any relationship to the whole of scripture, without any relationship or any connection to the full truth. Now, when Paul ventured into difficult and mysterious theological waters, he deliberately pointed to God's purposes so that, right, he says, according to God's purpose, so that his readers would learn to trust God rather than live in confusion and possibly spend all their time trying to nail down these very mysterious and difficult truths. We, we must remember, friends, that, that we have a mission, the church has a mission, and that's to preach the gospel right here in Jerusalem and, and over in Keys and throughout the whole world, to make disciples throughout the whole world. And, and if, if we want to climb the stairs of an ivory tower and become a theologian and just study doctrine and just try to figure these things out, I guess that's okay for some saints. I don't know. It doesn't go too well with me because Matthew 28 kind of refutes it. We just need to remember that there are some things that we're really not going to understand that are done according to his purpose. We receive those things in faith. We do at times study those things and look into them, but it's not supposed to consume every aspect of our life or time. You know, I, are we so foolish to think that others haven't come before us and spent enormous amounts of time trying to nail these things down? We have 2,000 years of church history and then a couple of thousand years of Jewish church history, if you will, and, and there's, there's things here that are just, whoa, I think Paul puts that in there as a safeguard. Okay, I'm going to talk about predestination. I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm just going to mention it. Then I'm going to couch it with according to God's purpose. That way you don't, you know, emotionally, spiritually kill yourself trying to understand that in its full sense and waste all your time and become depleted. And worst of all, debate every other believer and hammer them all and put them under your hand. I think Paul puts it in there as a safeguard. 
I mean, just ask yourself, let's just think of it rationally or logically. How can a believer be on mission if all he or she ever does is read theology and try to figure out what others have wrestled with for thousands of years? You you must understand that I am a student of God's Word, and I am not saying, well, don't study the Bible, don't study theology. What I'm saying is don't make that all you do. And it's pretty easy for guys like me and Paul and the elders and some of you in here to do that. I just lock myself away with a book. It's, it's easier. It's, it's, it's not volatile. There's no persecution there. I don't have to deal with you know, people outside that don't know Jesus or with saints who claim they do, who act like they don't. It's easier to do that. I, I, in fact, I have to spend a day or two a week doing that so I can write a sermon, but it can't be all that I do. It can't be all that you do. I believe in Bible study. I believe in theology more so than ever in the history of the church when biblical uh, uh, ignorance is rampant and never been highest. It's unprecedented today, so these things are massively important. I love those things, but we mustn't forget the mission of the church. And we mustn't forget that some truths, some truths will continue to be, they will continue to be mysterious on this side of glory. The Bible says that there are secret things that belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we we may observe all the words of the law. Now it's clear that there are some things that belong to the Lord that are mysterious, and then there's things that he has revealed. And we would immediately say, well, this is all that he's revealed, so it's all for us, and we should be able to understand all of it. I would agree to that in a sense, but I would also say there's still some things in here that are pretty challenging and mysterious that maybe we won't figure out completely in this life. So we need to be cautious there. In our next, uh, in our text, Paul is about to venture, okay, let's get back to the idea here. In our text, Paul is about to venture into the mysterious, and it's like he cautioned his readers, what I'm about to tell you uh, was done in accordance with God's purpose, so don't become dismayed. Don't, you know, because you can't get your mind completely around it. And, and don't make the mistake that Peter warns against and start twisting things to your own advantage because that's something we have to be very careful with. Now, secondly, the phrase, according to his purpose, also was Paul's way of reminding his readers that these spiritual blessings and Trinitarian works, remember, these are the works of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our salvation. These things are all of God and not of man. This is also his way of doing that and reminding us. He did that back in verse 5. Adoption, election, those are the things of God. You didn't have anything to do with them. In other words, human influence had no bearing or effect upon this mysterious thing that he's about to talk about and everything else that he's talked about. We could really, literally boil down verses 4 through 9a like this. In accordance with his own purpose, God has what? elected us unto salvation, predestined us unto adoption as sons and daughters, blessed us in the beloved, redeemed us how the forgiveness of our transgressions, trespasses, and given us wisdom and insight. Why has he given in the wisdom and insight? Why is this his work and blessing to the believer so that we can understand the mystery of his will? And so that too is what Paul is saying. He's warning, hey, this is mysterious. Be mindful of that. Don't go crazy. But he's also saying it's all God's work. And that should also cause us not to go crazy and and spin our wheels, right? Because we know that it's all Him and we believe that and trust in Him by faith. 
Now let's begin to look at the mystery of his will as described in phrases five through eight, all right? This is like, you're like, just get to that part, Phil. Well, I will, and it's still tough. All right, look at five with me. I'm going to need a little drink. Mm. Coffee and preaching. The riches of God's grace to me. Uh, Gina liked that one. Phrase five, which he set forth in Christ. Okay? Which he set forth in Christ. So the first thing that we notice about the mystery of God's will is that it has to do with Christ. It has to do with Christ. The mystery of God's will has been set forth in him, in Christ. This is key. Now, set forth means to make publicly known. It's like a public proclamation. It is to declare something in a public way. Christ is then the declaration, if you will, of God's mysterious will. He is the literal declaration of it. He came to proclaim the mysterious will of God. If you want to put it that way, you can interpret it that way. But it's more than that. It's much more than just declaration. Uh, set forth that Greek phrase there. Yes, it means to make public, publicly known. But it also means to purpose, to formulate, or to initiate. Okay? All right. Now just listen, because we're going to get to this. The Father sent His beloved Son, right? Jesus Christ, for several reasons. And I want to give you some examples as I thread this together. And it's, it's cool to know why He sent the Son, right? Because we always just think of John 3.16 as more. Okay, here, here's, some, here's some biblical facts. Jesus was sent into the world as light to the world. John 12, 46. Jesus was sent into the world to judge the world. John 9, 39. Jesus was sent into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, 10. Jesus was sent into the world to serve and give himself as a ransom for many, right? Matthew 20, 28. Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul says, I am the chief of them. He called himself the chief of them there. Jesus was sent into the world to call sinners to repentance, Mark 2.17. Jesus was sent into the world to die on the cross for our sins, right? John 12.27. Jesus was sent into the world to fulfill the law, Matthew 5.17. And lastly, Jesus was sent into the world to do the will of His Father, right? The mysterious will of His Father, too. John 6.38. Now, all of these things, all of these things that I've mentioned, and, and there are so much more. I mean, there are more of these things. But all of the things that I've listed here and, and, and read out loud to you have to do with God's will. God sent his beloved son to accomplish to do these things. It was God's will for Jesus to come and seek and to save, to die on a cross, to give his life as a ransom for many, and to fulfill the law, etc., etc. And what Paul is saying in verse 9 is that Jesus came to do something in addition to these things. He came to initiate something, to start something. 
He's like a catalyst for something. He came and something began. He came to start something, to fire it up, if you will. And it's something mysterious, as the text says. So Jesus Christ is not only the declaration of God's mysterious will, he is also the initiator of it. That's how we want to think of the Lord. In other words, he started something. He began something. Now look at how Paul begins to describe it in the next phrase. Look at the sixth phrase with me. This is really interesting. Number six, as a plan for the fullness of time. As a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, and I know my kids always make fun of me because I use this phrase all the time in eternity past, but I'm going to try to use a different one now. They're like, Dad, last Sunday you said that like 90 times. And I'm like, why does that bother you? But, you know, before, here it is in a different way, before God created the universe, I did that just so my kids couldn't say this, right? Before God created the universe, he devised or designed a plan for the fullness of time, okay? In eternity past, Colin, he designed a plan for the fullness of time. I don't know if there was a holy council meeting where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit came together and convened and, and talked to the Spirit. I don't know how it works. God is infinite. He knows all things. I, it, you would think he doesn't need to talk about these things. I don't know how it went down. I say this with all reverence. I don't know. But somehow a plan came together. A plan was made. Okay, now listen. The fullness of time is nothing more than another name for or another title for the end times or the last things. That's what the fullness of time means here. In fact, some of your translations might use a different phrase, but that's what it means. It means the end times. It means the last things. So God's Son, the Beloved, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, this is interesting because we've been talking also from last week to today, we've been talking about the ministry of Jesus, the work of Jesus in salvation. We talked about the Father's work. Now we're talking about the Son. So listen. God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Beloved, the second person of the Holy Trinity, He volunteered to be the one who would initiate God's plan for the fullness of time. That was another part. He volunteered Himself to the cross and these things to pay our price, to be our Redeemer. He did that. That's part of His work in our salvation. But He also volunteered to come and to initiate this fullness of plan, plan, this particular end times thing. It's pretty amazing. Listen to Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, what did God do? He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So it's like God had this timetable, right? And He doesn't even reside in time, but there was a time when He was going to send His Son, and it was when the fullness of time had begun. Pretty amazing. The arrival of Jesus, let's put it this way, the arrival of Jesus literally marked the beginning of the end times. When he came, it signified that because he was sent into the world when? When the fullness of time had come. So it's so important for us as believers to know that the end times are not coming. They're not on the horizon. I think they're coming because I'm trying to look at the seasons and I'm looking at the trees. No, 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 no. We're living in the end times. This is the last generation, folks. This is it. It's coming. 
So we are living in the fullness of time. We are living during the last things. We are living in the end times. It's now. It's happening now. Now, the end times can be divided into seven parts. I know they can be divided in many more ways, and I know there's different eschatologies. We're pre-trib rapture people here, uh, and, but we're also open to some of the other ideas because there's other things in Scripture, and so you know, maybe we should assume a little bit of each of the four primary views. I don't know. I think that when we're going up to be with Jesus, we'll find that it's a little bit of all of it. If it's none of it, that's going to be really weird. And a lot of people will have wasted all of their time in life not being on mission and trying to figure this out. And the Left Behind series, Kirk Cameron will finally say, that wasn't the best thing I did. <laughs> he might be saying that now. It's not terrible. I have to admit, I just watched the new one with Nicolas Cage. And, you know, that was the... If, did anyone see that? That was the world's longest plane crash. It took forever to p- crash the plane. It was like 90% of the movie. That's the stupidest thing I've said all morning. Anyways, so let's divide it into seven parts for us, Okay. And this would be a pre-trib rapture sort of thingy here. Part one, the initiation of the end times, right? At the arrival of Jesus. The incarnation signifies that. That's the starting point. That is the beginning of the end. The incarnation is the beginning of the end. You can write that down. Part two, the rapture. That is the removal of believers before judgment comes. Not final judgment, but a judgment. So you have the beginning of it, the initiation with the arrival of Jesus, and then you also have the rapture, that is the removal of believers before judgment comes. Part three, the tribulation period, or what we would call the bull judgments upon the earth. That's when God unleashes his fury and wrath, and most of the population throughout the world is destroyed. And it's just, it's going to be horrendous. And I always find it to be very silly when you're witnessing to an unbeliever and they say, well, so what you're saying is I'll have a chance to get saved during that seven years. And I'm like, you won't. Why is that? Because like two-thirds of humanity is gone. Or one-third. I don't know. what. It, I think it's more. I think it's probably two-thirds. And so this idea that, well, I can just prolong, you know, that's just the biggest bit of foolishness I've ever heard. There is a period coming after the rapture that's going to be absolutely devastating. I think the kind of which the world has never seen. Nazism will look like kinder care. It's going to be horrendous what happens, these bold judgments. Devastation, starvation, natural disasters, fire. It's just not something that you want to experience. And if you're a believer, praise God, you won't have to. And if you do see any of it, it won't be from this side. So you got the tribulation period, you have the bold judgments, right? Part four, you have the return of Christ, right? You have the return of Christ after the seven years, if that's how long it is. He comes back, right? And that is the initiation of what? The millennial kingdom. That is the initiation of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on earth. Is that a literal thing? I think so, but it's debatable. But we know that he's coming back, and we know that he's establishing his kingdom. So that's part four. Part five, and this is where it gets really weird, and this is the part I always have trouble with. It's like Satan is bound for that thousand years, but at the end of it, he's loosed. And he comes out and he begins to mislead people, and you know, and it, it just it almost you feel like it's reversing the kingdom work of God. It's not, it's intentional, it's purposeful, but people are gonna get led astray and sin, and it's not a good thing. And that happens later on. And really, the way that we want to think of part five, the loosing of Satan, is it's just a precursor to final judgment. That's the way that you ought to look at it. 
So it's confusing, it's mysterious, right? Right, we're talking about mysterious things, but it's necessary. Part six, then you have the final judgment of God. That's the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are judged and cast into the lake of fire. A horrible, horrible uh, event, devastating event, all the more reason to repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then part seven, this is amazing, part seven we have the eternal kingdom the new heavens and the new earth. And that's going to be phenomenal. I'm longing for the millennial reign of Christ. I'm longing for the eternal state or the eternal kingdom because at that point, Satan is completely, we're rid of him and there's no temptation. Nothing can happen that thwarts God's will at all or I wouldn't even say that the loosing of Satan thwarts God's will, it actually fulfills it. But let's just say that he's gone, he's cast into the lake of fire, so is death in Hades. And so it's amazing. So what do you have? You have seven parts. That's how we kind of, in a very generic way, divide the end times. These things basically represent God's plan for the fullness of time. Those things are events and periods of time. The only one that isn't a period of time is the eternal kingdom because it has no end. It has a beginning, but it has no end. And, and these things, these parts, have all been set forth in and through Christ. That's what Paul is saying, right? His plan for the fullness of time according to his purpose, he gave us wisdom and insight to understand it, has all been, all of these things have been set forth in Christ. It's imperative that we know this and understand this. So we must know that since Christ has come the first time and sort of initiated all of this, and it'll all be carried out through him, in him, we must know and we must understand that the clock is ticking. Now, I know that some of us could say, and we might feel at times, it's been a couple thousand years, so, you know, and, and a day is like a thousand years with the Lord, and we try to take those metaphors and say that, man, it could be a long time before Christ comes back, but I'll tell you this, the early Christians didn't think it was a long time. In fact, I think that when Rome was destroyed in 70 AD, they probably thought that was it. Some of them may have thought, man, this is, the judgments are on us. Look at this. Of course, that was the Romans destroying the city, so I don't know how, but a lot of people, and you know, have you ever heard of, uh, uh, what's his name, Camping? Well, he's planned out, you know, it's 1988, it didn't happen. It's 1989, it didn't happen. It's 1990, it didn't happen. Dang it, I'm going to give up. And then he died. People have been trying to nail this all down, but I will assure you, on the authority of God's word, it's sooner than later. Look at the signs. Look at the world. Some of us are so anxious and disturbed by what's happening in culture, and we, we must all know it's a really cheesy, pretentious saying, but it has to get worse before it can get better. It, the world is, is it's, it's like it's ticking down, it's getting worse, it's getting to a place where God will literally activate the second and third parts, and then on and on of His plan for the fullness of time. But I, I don't think it's way out in the future. I don't think it's a thousand years. It could be. I don't think America is going to be around in a thousand years, not with progressives running the government. And I, I, I'm sorry if that offends you, but this whole idea of turning America into Europe, and we look at Europe and we think that it's a great place. I, it is. It is a wonderful place to visit on vacation. But politically and morally, it is bankrupt. And so I, I just don't, yeah. I, I'll tell you this, I'm hoping and praying that it's not another thousand years away. 
Because I don't want to read one more article about baby parts being sold. I don't. It infuriates me. I don't want to read about that. I don't want to read about gay marriage. I don't want to read about... I just, it drives me absolutely up the wall. Ultimately, because it's so destructive. I can't stand to see people suffer this way. I don't like it when the church suffers persecution for being about the truth. I don't want to look at a boy in a bed with a leg injury and it's become this. I just don't make it a thousand years. Tomorrow's cool. But people will be lost, Phil, and, and, and people won't be able to go to heaven. No election stands, friends. No one whom God has chosen to be saved will be lost. We must understand that too. And that's what he says in the very first beginning of this text. Christ himself reiterated this over and over and over that I will lose none whom the Father has promised to me. The Father does not break his promises, never to the Son. Every person whom God has elected unto salvation will be saved. So if Jesus comes back tomorrow, the final number of the Gentiles has come in. God, it's okay with us if you want to do that. Don't you feel the same way? It's not because we, we hate the SCOTUS or because we hate the abortion doctors. We hate what lost sinners do on earth. I hate what I do at times. We hate sin. We hate its destructive nature. We hate the fact that the innocent are killed in the womb. We hate the fact that, that all of these things are just happening and spiraling out of control. I, if, if you feel this way, that's a good sign. You probably have the Holy Spirit. Because God detests sin. So I'm, I'm okay with the, the fullness of time beginning with Jesus. And, and what I would say to all of us is let's be ready for his return. You know, we're not told when he's going to come back. We're told you can look and kind of check things out in the world and get maybe a sense of what's happening. We're told that. Jesus said that. We don't have the exact date, but what we are exhorted to do endlessly in Scripture is be ready for it because he'll come as a thief comes in the night. You won't be expecting it. And, and the great question to us is, what will we be doing when he returns? Sitting in front of a computer screen looking at stupid junk? I'm not talking about Minecraft. That's not wise stuff. Looking at porn? What will we be doing? Will we be at the hospital loving on a five-year-old boy who came near to death? With a family that's been struggling? Will we be giving our time, talent, and treasure to the work of the man. What will we be doing? Spinning our wheels trying to figure out the end when the end is right here and Jesus comes back? Oh, look. And it's a great question to ask. I want to be ready for it and I feel like so often I'm not because I'm still very much about comfort and, and enjoying my life and, and I'm not saying that we don't have Sabbath and and these things, but we should be ready. 
We should be ready. We should be anticipating His arrival. We should be crying out to Him fervently in prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's okay. Your elect won't be lost. You can come. You can come now. Of course, he's probably saying, well, it's about another 1,500 years, so come on, Gentiles, get it together. (laughs) Like as if they could. Oh, okay, I'll receive Christ now. Yeah, right. Anyways, I I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but that's what's happening. Now, listen, look at the seventh, seventh phrase with me, okay? Paul then describes one of the mysterious things that will take place as God's plan unfolds, right? Look at phrase seven. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Two phrases, but one leads to the other. God's end time plan, my friends, includes total redemption. That's what he's speaking of here. Last week we looked at the redemption of God's people, the redemption of the elect, right? That's what we looked at. But here Paul speaks of the redemption of all things in heaven and on earth. This is the redemption of creation, if you will. When Adam and Eve sinned, they they plunged creation into sin. All things have been terribly, horribly, horrifically impacted by their disobedience. And don't think just by theirs, but by ours and our ongoing disobedience. Listen to Romans 8, 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, Adam, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. What's he saying? Our sin has impacted creation to the point where creation itself is longing for total redemption. So redemption, friends, is twofold. There is the redemption of God's people, the elect, and there is the redemption of all things in heaven and on earth. Now, the redemption of the elect is happening now. God is saving His people, and He is preparing them for His kingdom. He's been doing that for a while. The redemption of all things in heaven and on earth is coming. It is coming. It's part of His plan for the fullness of time. So God's fullness of time plan, His end time plan, His end things plan, has to do with total, absolute, complete redemption. That is what Paul is pointing to here. That is what he is referring to here. And when we think of the blood of Christ, we think of human redemption, don't we? Christ shed His blood to redeem and deliver sinners like us, the elect, right? That's what we think of. That's the popular view. And guess what? It's the right view, but it's not the whole view. Might be a good idea if you like to evangelize to switch that up a little bit and not just talk about how He wants to maybe save you and redeem you and you know, these things, but you, you know He's got a whole plan for the whole universe. There's, there's a total redemption here going on that's going to play out. It's going to be amazing. You get to be a part of that. So think of this. The blood of Christ 
did more than pay for our sins and buy us out of slavery. Listen to Colossians 1, 19 to 20. I had some of it read earlier. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Pretty amazing. So the blood of Christ has paved the way to full redemption. His blood provided the pathway to peace between God and men and God and creation. Now, don't misunderstand me. Creation has not sinned against God. Man has. Half Dome has not broken God's laws and transgressed against Him, and neither has a rabbit. Man has sinned against God. But creation is in turmoil because of our sin. I'm thinking of a little bit of turmoil that uh, two of our beloved families experienced, I think, yesterday while they were camping up near Kennedy Meadows. There was an hour-long hailstorm, and they were in tents. They came home, I think, in the middle of the night or very early this morning because, you know, they didn't have canoes with them. We would, we would refer to that as natural chaos, Right? That's a problem. So creation is in turmoil because of our sin, right? We, we would all agree. We look at natural disasters and all of these things. Something's going on. It wasn't that way in the pre-Adamic state. It was perfect. Perfect weather and a perfect canopy and perfect for your cigars because the you know, humidity was absolutely perfect. Dumb reference. So, since creation is in turmoil, in a sense, because of our sin, it must, therefore, be brought into a state of peace and harmony. Now, think of all the animals, and think of the lion laying down with the lamb, right? Think of these, those metaphors and things. This is an, an idea of the eternal kingdom, or maybe the millennial. This is what we're talking about. Now, I believe... I did a little bit of research on it, and I'm confused as to when this total redemption takes place, if it takes place during the millennial kingdom or the eternal kingdom. Probably the eternal kingdom, I don't know, but I, I sort of believe that it, that it begins at the second coming of Christ because the judgments have been hammered, the, world, you know, the worst natural disasters and things have happened, and when he comes, you're, you're not going to have a tsunami during the millennial reign of Christ and a whole bunch of people get killed on a beach. Makes no sense. We're in the millennial kingdom. Why did this just happen? And so I believe it'll happen at the return of Christ. I think that's when it takes place. But friends, as Paul has written to us here so clearly, it's coming. It's a part of his end time plan. What a glorious day. What a glorious day that will be when Christ returns to unite all things in heaven and on earth to himself, right? Aren't you looking forward to that day? You watch the news for about 15 minutes and you will be hoping for that day. And my wife says, do not watch the news because every time you do it, you get very angry. And she's right. But if I do happen to flip the news on by accident, I should focus on the return of Christ and when that will be gone, that which I'm hearing about will be gone. So when you see the stuff and it's stupid and crazy, you pray for Christ's return Set your hope on that and him and don't get too fired up. 
we would all agree that the world is a, is a terrible, terrible place with all the things that are happening, but not for long because Christ is coming back. Full redemption is on the horizon, right? It's coming, man. It's coming. Closing. The mystery of God's will has been revealed to us in this text. We know what the future holds. We don't have every detail down or exactly how it's going to play out. All week long, I've been wrestling with how Christ is going to unite all things in himself. I'm like, head explosion, scanners. I just, it's like, I don't know how that's all going to work out. It, it, you know, right? There's, it, God has like made some things clearer. Look, it, it's coming. He's coming. It's happening. He's going to unite all things. That's what he's told us. He hasn't given us the exact how because there's still mystery there. But he's given us enough to say, I'm going to set my hope and gaze upon what he's doing and what he's coming to do. We have been given basic knowledge, basic wisdom, basic insight into the future. It's a gift of God's grace to us brought by the Holy Spirit. How wonderful. This is a spiritual blessing to us. This foreknowledge, knowing what's coming, having this revealed to us, right? Because all of these things that we've been talking about are a spiritual blessing, but praise God, they become physical blessings in the future. And I would say in light of these terrific truths, we should set our minds, make it our goal right now to live in a way that honors the giver of this precious gift. We can do this by keeping our focus on the return of Christ, not on Donald Trump's horrific hair or flip-flop policy. I just, okay, here I go again. Good night! You're right, Rachel, I will not watch the news. We shouldn't pay too much attention to those things, but we we can honor the giver of this precious gift by keeping our focus on the return of Christ. We can do this by continuing to love and serve one another. And I have seen such an extraordinary example of that in this situation with the, our beloved, the Philbrins, and how you guys have risen up and been praying and, and caring for them and giving generously and, and moving them down there. Just, it's amazing, you know? What an encouragement that's been to them and to everyone involved. We can do this. We can honor the giver of this precious gift Knowing the end times in a sense by giving him our time, talent, and treasure. We can give ourselves to the cause of Christ. That's what he calls us to do. We can do this by loving our neighbors and telling them about Jesus, who is their only hope. There is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved but that of the Lord Jesus. We can do this by obeying the Scripture and living them out. 